to the fourth episode of Go to Sleep. This episode's a little late this week because um, I have some old friends visiting from out of town. So normally I record this podcast on the weekend and release it on the weekend as well, but this weekend I was with my friends who were visiting, so I didn't have time to do the podcast. You can probably also hear this week that my voice is a little gone from being with my friends. So I will do my best. Um, As I've mentioned before on this podcast, uh, I live in the San Francisco area, um, Oakland specifically, but I lived for most of the last decade in San Francisco itself. Uh, I came to San Francisco in the fall of 2006, and sometime in either the late fall of 2006 or maybe very early 2007, uh, I was at a like a house party with my roommate at the time and a new friend of ours that we had met, and she had been uh, telling us about this guy that she knew who was the only other person she knew who liked the music of Ryan Adams. Uh, and uh, we'd heard about this guy for a while, and she kept saying, oh, you, you got to meet him, you got to meet him, you all are going to be... Y'all are going to be such good friends. And uh, and so we were, were at this house party, standing around. And uh, and unrelatedly, we were kind of looking around the crowd and being, you know, as, as young people often are, being a little judgmental of the people we saw. And I saw a guy walking across the room, and he was like classic emo, black, swoopy haircut, uh, leather jacket, super deep white v-neck shirt, tons of jewelry, tons of tattoos. And I thought, who is this guy? And I said to my roommate, look at that motley crew looking idiot over there. And uh, and of course, that guy walked over and uh, said hi to our friend and was the Ryan Adams fan that she had wanted us to meet. And that's how I met the friend who's visiting this weekend. It turned out uh, in the course of that conversation, we discovered he lived across the street from us. And so all of a sudden, we just started hanging out every day. He had a key to our house at one point, and eventually he lived with us. But uh, from that um, humble beginning, uh, 11 years ago or so, he's uh, still one of my closest friends in the world. Uh, and about five or six years ago, he he moved away. It's a pretty common pattern here uh, in the Bay Area. It's very, very expensive to live here, and there aren't a lot of jobs in a lot of fields other than um, software and technology things. So if you want to afford to live here and you have goals in your life that are not working at a tech company, you often cannot achieve those goals here. So the the vast majority of my friends from those early days, have moved away. Uh, And uh, and so he he moved away, like I said, five or six years ago. And, and, you know, I visit, he visits, I see him sometimes, but not that often. So very, very exciting that he's uh, in town right now with his wife and that I get to see them. I'm actually going to see them again today as soon as I'm done recording this podcast for you all. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do, but 
knowing us, it'll be something silly. All right, so this week uh, I'm going to read from a new book. I guess it's been a new book every week. This week I'm going to read from a book I found I'm very excited about. It's called The Horse in History. And it was first published in 1908. And I'm going to read from the first chapter of part two, From the Conquest to the Stuart Period, chapter one. The beginning of William the Conqueror's reign marks a turning point in the story of the horse's influence upon the British nation. Also, incidentally, in the general development of the horse. Roger de Belsnay, Earl of Shrewsbury, who is said to have been an accomplished horseman, as fine horsemanship was understood in those days, obtained leave of the king to import from Spain a number of stallions of great value. These stallions, indeed, were said at the time to be the best procurable in Spain, and we are told that when King William beheld them, he displayed great delight, at the same time expressing his approval in a very forcible way. The king himself apparently was not a finished horseman, Yet he had a strong liking for horses, possibly in the same way that he loved the great deer of the forests as though he had been their father. Most likely he was too heavily built a man to make a graceful rider, though it is said that upon the arrival of Lord Shrewsbury's stallions he went on horseback to inspect them, and as we know, towards the end of the 16th or the beginning of the 17th century, the poet Drayton praised very highly the progeny of these same horses. Naturally, this importation of valuable stallions greatly improved the breed of horses in Britain and from the time of the conquest onward, the improvement was distinctly noticeable. Though some historians tell us that the Anglo-Saxons rode on horseback, others maintain that they did not ride. There can be no doubt, however, that they did not fight on horseback. The well-known scene on Bayeux Tapestry that represents the Battle of Hastings shows us Harold fighting on foot when the arrow strikes him in the eye. A comparatively modern historian has tried to disprove the popular story of the Normans shooting their shafts high into the air so that in their descent these shafts might pierce the heads of the enemy, but the old narrative is still believed by the great body of modern students. King William's warriors were, of course, almost all mounted. Of that there cannot be a doubt. Had they not been the Saxons, would most likely have won the day, even though the enemy was clad in mail. Also it should be remembered that the cavalry brought over by King William was practically of the stamp that some three centuries earlier had resisted very firmly the Moslem attack at Poitiers. The chargers were of the same stock, and therefore it may be with truth be said that the famous Norman conquest and the great and important events that followed it in the history of this country were directly due to the simple fact that the Normans possessed war horses and knew thoroughly how to manage them. Of precisely what stamp the Normans' chargers were that they were imported at this time cannot be said for certain. Without doubt, however, they were tall and heavily built animals, for the armed men they had to carry were of very great weight. For ten or possibly twelve centuries, a breed of great horses has been multiplying largely in the north and western regions of Europe, so the inference is that the cavalry of the Normans must have been of that breed. Also, the saddles they are represented as wearing were extremely massive and presumably of great weight. Those shown on the Bayou tapestry have a deep curve which must have made them difficult to fall out of, and we are told by Geraldus that saddles almost exactly similar, and provided with stirrups, were in use in Ireland a century or so later. The riders at that time wore high boots, prick spurs, and Halberg. A monk of Canterbury, William Stephanides, writing early in the reign of Henry II, alludes to various kinds of horses used in Great Britain, and among these were undoubtedly were some of the stamp that the Normans imported. Without one of the London city gates, he tells us, is a certain smooth field, 
no doubt the site known today as Smithfield. And every Friday there is a brave sight of gallant horses to be sold. Many come from the city to buy or look on, to wit earls, barons, knights, and citizens. There are to be found here managed or war horses of elegant shape, full of fire, and giving every proof of a generous and noble temper, likewise cart horses, horses fitted for the dray or the plough or the chariot. From other sources we are able to gather that this time there must have been many war horses in England, and that they were for the most part animals of great size and strength. Consequently, the cavalry of this period were extremely unwieldy. On the other hand, we know that the rest of the horses distributed throughout the country were but little bigger than cobs, and we read that though attempts were made to mount men-at-arms on some of them, all attempts had soon to be abandoned, the horses being oppressed by the weight of the armor and the heavy accoutrement. Probably this was the reason such strenuous efforts were presently made by the various reigning monarchs, and by the parliaments that were in power between the reign of Henry II and the reign of Elizabeth, to breed bigger and heavier horses, great horses, as they came to be called, and are often termed still. Some of the Latin records of the medieval age contain interesting allusions to these great horses. Dextrari and Magni Equi, they were called. The horses of this stamp do not appear to have been very intelligent animals, but their physical strength was colossal, and in selecting them, particular attention was paid to their power of endurance, or as we call it today, their staying power. Apparently Henry II and Richard I were partial to chestnut and dark brown stallions, but King John and later Queen Elizabeth preferred black. Indeed, we are told in the beginning of his reign, King John vowed he would have his courtiers ride none but black horses, and that the sums he had to pay to enable him to gratify so foolish a fad, it may have been mere vanity, were quoted among the acts of extravagance that later incensed his barons, and led ultimately to their making him sign Magna Carta. As the size and strength of the war horses grew greater in all countries, so did the weight and strength of the armor steadily increase. Towards the end of the twelfth century, the Norman hauberk, that for many years had proved effective, and that even the most far-seeing of the warriors firmly believed could not be approved upon, began to make way for the heavy chain mail, the most picturesque armor ever adopted by any nation, which when first introduced was said to render the warrior almost invulnerable. But as time went on and the strength of both men and horses further increased, and the weapons of war became more deadly still, the armor again underwent a change, so that about the beginning of the 14th century we find the perfect armor, as it had come to be called, being in its turn discarded in favor of the hideous plate armor that less than a hundred years afterwards was adopted by practically every civilized nation in Europe. A monk of Canterbury by name Fitzstephen, who in the reign of Henry II was secretary to the famous Archbishop Becket, refers incidentally to some rather primitive racehorses which took place at Smithfield towards the end of the 12th century, and in doing so he quaintly tells us that the jockeys, inspired with thoughts of applause and in the hope of victory, clap spurs to the willing horses, brandish their whips, and cheer them with their cries. Reference is made to these races in several others of the early documents, and though they are among the first horse races of which descriptions have been handed down to us, it seems clear that they attracted a great concourse of spectators and gave rise to much reckless wagering. That the animals entered were all practically untrained is made apparent. King Richard I is said to have been a good judge of a horse, and have owned a number of swift-running steeds. Upon one or two occasions he endeavored to establish horse racing as a national pastime, but the country was not yet ripe for it, and his attempts met with scant encouragement. It is said that his courtiers strove to serve their royal master by having recourse to threats in those districts where the introduction of horse racing was opposed, but all to no purpose. King John, upon ascending the throne, devoted much time to hunting and similar sports, and valued good horses so greatly that in some instances he insisted that the fines he was so fond of extorting should be paid in horses instead of in money. 
Then following in the footsteps of William the Conqueror, he imported a number of stallions, among them many of the eastern breed, and on the pastures in Kent where the towns of Eltham and the village of Monningham now stand, he established the famous stud from which so many of the horses owned in after years by Queen Elizabeth were directly descended. Worthy of mention here is the coincidence that the early days of some of the most celebrated thoroughbreds of recent times were spent in the very paddocks where King John's foals and imported horses were disporting themselves some seven centuries earlier. On the subject of the great horses of the Middle Ages, it is interesting to read that while British rulers were striving to breed animals which would be both bigger and stronger than their predecessors, the Persians in their country were endeavoring to breed and rear horses on lines precisely similar and with the same objects in view. How successful the attempts of the latter proved may be gathered from the fact that, in the centuries that followed, the Persian horses became renowned the world over for their immense strength, though the animals of this particular breed never became famous for their speed. Indeed, the chief victories won by the Persians in their terrific encounters with the Turks in the 15th and 16th centuries were due to, in great measure, to the superior size and strength of the Persian war horses. Though, of course, the fact that the Turks had only their shields with which to protect themselves must have helped the Persians materially. Perhaps some of the most interesting and accurate representations of the horses of this period are those to be found in parts of Ireland among the remains of Irish art. These remains, rather let us call them relics, are almost matchless, and they represent horses driven in chariots and some mounted by riders. Thus three horsemen, in addition to two chariots with horses harnessed, are to be seen on the two panels of the plinth of the historic North Cross at Clonmacnoiz in Kings County. The wheels of these chariots have eight spokes, and the relic is believed by the foremost of our antiquaries to date back to the 10th century. A panel almost similar, dating back approximately to the same period, is to be seen on an upright cross in a street in the town of Kells in County Meath, and on this cross not only are horsemen shown, but in addition a hunting scene is clearly depicted. Relics such as these help to demonstrate that the interest taken in horses by the people of Great Britain, just before and just after the conquest, was shared by the natives of Ireland, though not until several centuries had elapsed did the Irish show signs of becoming the thoroughly horse-loving nation that they are today. It is true that from a very early period they were fond of most kinds of outdoor pursuits that need daring in addition to the exercise of skill upon the part of those anxious to become proficient at them. Also it is true that the horse has, from first to last, had much to do with the molding of the Irish character. The horse's immediate bearing upon the history and progress of Ireland begins, however, at a later date, and in the same manner the importation of great horses and the establishment of what must have been the precursors of our modern stud farms occur later in Ireland's history than in England's. With the ascension of Henry III, we find upon the throne a king keenly interested in all that had to do with horses, and devoted to the chase as well as to stirring contests between competing horses. For authentic particulars of these contests in which these competing horses took part, we may search the ancient records almost in vain. Apparently the few race meetings organized were, to say the best we can of them, not of great importance, not excepting those in which the king and his nobles were directly interested. To afford opportunities for wagering was, so far as one can gather, their principal raison d'etre, and such rules of racing as did exist most likely were almost wholly disregarded. In this respect, the king would not seem to have been much more particular than his subjects, though, as already said, information obtainable upon the subject is of the scantiest and is at best unreliable. In the history of Henry III's reign, there occurs what we may take to be the first direct reference to a village named Newmarket in Cambridgeshire. As I've already pointed out, the tribe that dwelt on Newmarket Heath in very early times and was known as the Iceni apparently was interested in horses, and to some extent bred horses, 
so it is not astonishing to learn that in the 13th century, the people then living in Newmarket and the neighborhood still carried on the traditions of the Iceni, even to boasting openly that steeds bred upon the heath could not be rivaled for speed the world over. This most likely was an empty boast, for what could a small community that presumably traveled but rarely know at first hand of horses bred even in far distant parts of England? It is true that Simone de Montfort had a high opinion of the horses bred at Newmarket, for he tells us so in a letter written a few years before his death. He was killed at Evesham in 1265. Presumably he rode in the hunting field some of his horses that had been reared at Newmarket, for he was keen about hunting as he was about soldiering. Historians have described him as the great patriotic baron of his period, a description that is accurate if we are to judge from his acts. I believe I am right in saying that Simone de Montfort was the first master of foxhounds of whom mention is made in British history, but upon this point I am open to correction. Certainly he is the first of whose life we have authentic details. On his great seal attached to a deed dating 1259, and now in Paris among the royal archives, he is shown galloping beside his hounds, urging them on and blowing his horn. He is said to have hunted largely in Leicestershire and Warwickshire, and as he lived in the 13th century, the seal referred to forms most likely the first picture we have of bona fide run with foxhounds. In Blunt's Ancient Tenures, a volume that is extremely interesting and in some respects amusing, we are told that in the reign of King Edward I, Walter Marasculus paid at the Crimson Lapidim six horseshoes with nails for a certain building, which he held of the king in Capite opposite the stone cross. This recalls to mind that in the reign of Henry III, and even later, horseshoes and horseshoe nails were frequently taken in lieu of rent. Whether or no horseshoes were of exceptional value does not appear, but we are led to suppose that they must have been from the fact that in 1251 a farrier named Walter Le Brun, who lived in the Strand in London, was granted a plot of land in the parish of St. Clement's, to place there a forge six horseshoes to be paid to the parish every year for the privilege. In after years, the same plot was granted to the mayor and citizens of London, who it is said still render six horseshoes to the exchequer annually. According to the statutes 25 Edward I, C21 and 36, Edward III, CC45, the king could commandeer from his subjects as many horses as he might need for his own service. By the nobles and barons, this was deemed a harsh measure, and frequently they rebelled against it. Some of the more spirited even refused to acknowledge its validity, with the result that a number were slain while attempting to retain their horses by force. Others were imprisoned, and few were put to death as rebels. Indeed, at this period, the theft of a horse ranked second only to murder, and was punished as severely. A, port a horse upon whose history several more or less romantic stories and poems have been based was the bay charger owned by King Edward I, that Sir Eustace de Hesch rode in the Battle of Falkirk in, 19 in 1298. It had a white stocking on its near hind leg, and according to one story, its sire and grandsire had each a white stocking almost exactly similar. Some say that this charger, it had several names apparently, was killed in the battle, for it is known beyond dispute that many of the chargers owned by knights, barons, valets, esquires were slain in that great conflict. Other reports, however, have it that Sir Eustace's mount came through the fight without a scratch. Sir Eustace was so singularly attached to this particular horse, and is said to have refused offers of large sums if he would sell it. He is also accredited with the remark that in courage and intelligence his bay charger eclipsed all other war horses he had ever owned. Much of interest to do with horses has been narrated by a distinguished writer who flourished towards the end of the 13th and in the beginning of the 14th centuries, namely Marco Polo. His remarks about the superstitions that were prevalent in his time were exceptionally instructive. Writing of the city of Chandu, which was founded by Kublai, and that gave the name to the river now known as Shangtu, Polo tells us to remember that the Khan owned an immense stud of white horses and mares, some 10,000 in all, 
and not one with a speck or blemish visible. The milk of these mares was reserved for the Khan and his family, and they drank a great deal of it, the rest being given to some of the more distant relatives of the tribe. Upon occasions, however, a tribe named Horiad was allowed to drink of the milk of the mares, the privilege being granted to them, as Polo says, by Genghis Khan on account of a certain victory they long ago helped him to win. Elsewhere, Polo described what may be termed the etiquette it was essential the traveler should observe, who chanced to come upon the herd of white mares when they were traveling. Be he the greatest lord in the land, he tells us, he must not presume to pass until the mares have gone by. He must either tarry where he is, or go half a day's journey round, if need so be, so as not to come nigh them, for they are to be treated with the greatest respect. Non-observance of this unwritten law brought grief in its train, the punishments inflicted being as varied as they were horrible. Furthermore, every year on the 28th of August the Lord set out from the park, upon which occasion none of the mare's milk was drunk. Instead it was collected in large mouth vessels kept expressly for the purpose of the occasion, and after that it was sprinkled over a vast stretch of ground and in many different directions. This was done on the injunction of the idolaters and idol priests, who steadfastly maintained that if the milk were thus sprinkled once a year, the earth and the air and the gods shall have their share of it, and the spirits likewise that inhabit the air and the earth. And thus those beings will protect and bless the Khan and his children and his wives and his folk, and his gear and his cattle and his horses and his corn, and all that is his, and after this done the emperor is off and away. It is strange, also significant, that in almost every age allusion has been made to the respect habitually paid to white horses, especially pure white horses. From Homer we know that in his period, or toward the latter part of the 8th century B.C., the Thracians, the Illyrians, and the people of Upper Europe spoke of white horses as though they almost worshipped them as gods. In those early times it was deemed criminally intentionally in those early times it was deemed criminal intentionally to wound a white horse, while to kill one even by accident was thought to be little but little less blameworthy, save of course upon occasions when a white horse was to be sacrificed to please the gods, or to appease their anger. Some centuries later, Herodotus virtually repeats what Homer has already told us, and gives us to understand, in addition, that by that time parts of Russia teemed with white horses, many of them of great value. Whether towards the end of the 3rd and the beginning of the 2nd centuries BC, the Russians treated even white horses with ordinary humanity would appear doubtful, though we know that Russians entertained superstitious and grotesque beliefs concerning horses that were either white or cream-colored. Finally, some seven centuries later, Marco Polo comes with his remarkable narratives of the Tartars' herds of white horses, and their strange beliefs concerning them. From other sources, particulars may be obtained of the barbarous practices these Tartars had recourse to upon the occasions of their sacrificial ceremonies, particulars of too revolting a nature to be given here. And now again we find allusion to the turf. Apparently Edward II disliked horse racing, such horse racing as there was in his reign, and all that appertained to it. For upon the feast of St. George in the year 1309, we find him interdicting a tournament which was to be held on Newmarket Heath, an act that made him unpopular for the moment, though when some years later he deliberately put a stop to preparations and progress in connection with a similar tournament, nobody seemed much to mind. Though the people of England were none the less interested in horses at about this time, we may infer from the knowledge we have that John Gifford and William Tweedy had already issued their books upon horses and hunting, books to be seen to this day among the manuscripts of the Cotonian collection, and that were, if one may express it so, widely read when first written. Strictly dissimilar were the views of Edward III from those of his predecessors, where the subject of horses and the various forms of sport in which the horse plays a prominent part were concerned. The steps taken by Edward II, deliberately to foster general dislike of certain branches of sport, had not achieved the desired effect save amongst his small circle of sycophants, and one of Edward III's first acts upon succeeding him was to gather together a stud of the swiftest running horses procurable. This act 
it was that led the popular king of Navarre to select two swift-running horses of great beauty from his stable and send them as a present to Edward III, a compliment which pleased Edward greatly and that he quickly acknowledged. In this reign, also in the reign of the succeeding monarch Richard II, acts were passed which directly tended to encourage the breeding and rearing of good horses. Indeed, the sums spent by Edward III in connection with this must have been prodigious, for it is on record that upon one occasion he purchased from the Count of Henault alone horses to the value of some 25,000 florins. Many of the horses that he bought, however, came direct from the Low Countries. Among the royal manors where he established large studs, especially studs of war horses, were Woodstock, Waltham, Hodeham, and of course Windsor, a proportion of the expense of inaugurating and supporting these stud farms being defrayed by the sheriffs, according to royal command. Yet in spite of all this, the supply of horses obtainable was not equal to the demand when the Great War with France broke out. At the Battle of Crecy in 1346, only a proportion of the army of Edward III and the Black Prince had horses, though we know that almost on the eve of the campaign considerable sums were spent upon the purchase of horses from the King of Gascony and from several large owners. This seems stranger still when we remember that the English army at Crecy was limited to some 36,000 men only, whereas King Philip's forces numbered over 130,000. Cressy, indeed, is one of the few historical battles in which the army that was the best mounted did not win the day, but then all historians admit that the bowmen the English brought into the field upon that occasion were probably among the best disciplined and the most expert that had ever before been seen in action. On the other hand, the horses of the opposing forces were not of the best. Many had hardly been trained at all to arms, and many more had been commandeered and hurried into the field almost at the eleventh hour. Some historians hold that Philip's army would have fared better had there been fewer men at arms in the fighting line, and it is possible that upon this single occasion if the army has had fewer horses, it might have achieved success. When the Pale was troubled by an eruption of the O'Burns and O'Moores in 1372, Professor Ridgway writes in his interesting and instructive work The Origin and Influence of the Thoroughbred Horse, who burned the Priory of Athy, John Colton, the first master of Gonville Hall, now Gonville and Caius College, and successfully Dean of St. Patrick's, Chancellor of Ireland, and Archbishop of Armagh, raised a force of twenty-six knights and a large body of men-of-arms, and fell upon the Irish and defeated them with great slaughter. Upon referring to the records of this incident, to be found in several of our histories, it becomes evident that in the Pale at that time there must have been many horses of the stamp that today we speak of as the Great Horse. The insurrection alluded to so lightly as an eruption of the O'Burns and O'Moores, in reality was a serious affair, due, we are told, mainly to the almost total disregard of certain just demands made by O'Burn, O'Moore, and their followers. The Irish were, for the most part, badly mounted and poorly armed, many of their horses having been seized surreptitiously a short time prior to the outbreak, but they appear to have made a very gallant defense. John Colton's men-at-arms were, however, nearly all of great weight and heavily armed, so it is not surprising to read that they made short work of the Irish rebels. Remarkable would it have been had they not done so, for we must bear in mind that their suppressors were of immeasurably superior strength. A horse fold some years after this, which lived to become famous in British history, was King Richard II's Barbary, often called Roan Barbary. The king, we are told in rather extravagant language, loved Roan Barbary as the only son, and certainly it is true that he was exceptionally fond of this particular horse which poets, dramatists, and writers at Romance at various periods have all united in immortalizing. Richard's grief and rage at hearing that Bolingbroke had chosen Roan Barbary of all horses upon which to ride to Westminster when he went there to be crowned has many times been described. Shakespeare himself referring to the incident in King Richard II in the well-known line, when Bolingbroke rode on Ron Barbary, that horse that so often has bestride. Ron Barbary was a tall horse, well-shaped and well-schooled, but of uncertain temper. The king could do with the steed whatever he wished, but some of the grooms hardly dared approach it to groom it, 
lest he sideways kick them. It is interesting to note here that the history of early times, when it touches upon horses, which it does frequently, alludes upon many occasions to the partiality of particular horses for certain persons, and to their equally marked dislike for certain other persons. The inference naturally would be that these particular horses are partial to the men who treated them humanely, and dislike those who ill-treated them. If the early historians are to be believed, however, the horses' likes and dislikes for various persons were irrespective of the way they had been treated by such persons. Particularly does this appear to have been the case with Brown Barbary, for we are assured that all who had charge of him, or to do with him in any way, treated him invariably with kindness and great cordiality, the king having issued strict orders that they should. In the British Museum there may be seen today a French metrical history of the deposition of Richard II, which informs us that the king owned many a good horse of foreign breed. Mr. J.P. Hoare, the well-known authority, is of opinion that the thoroughbred English horse was characteristic of the nation in the reign of Richard II, and adds that horses were then recognized and their praises sung. There is no doubt that between 1377 and 1399, the interest taken in horses in this country by persons of almost every class developed rapidly. The agricultural community in particular had by then begun to turn its attention seriously to the rearing of a better stamp of horse, and we know that Chaucer, who lived from 1328 to 1400, tells us that his famous monk had full of many a dainty horse and stable. Chaucer's interesting references to the various sorts of horse in use in the 14th century are numerous, and they serve to show that persons of different rank rode horses of different stamp. Thus, on that fine April morning when the motley party of pilgrims set out from the bell at Southwark upon their hasty journey, we find the knight mounted on a big and powerful horse. Naturally, a knight wearing armor needed such a beast to carry him, whereas the steed ridden by the clerk of Oxenford was as lean as any rake. The wife of Bath, on the other hand, with her great spurs, sat astride an amblier. The plowman rode a mare. The shipman from Dartmouth rode a rouncy as he couth, while the reeve sat upon a fit good stot that was all palmly gray and high scot. In the knight's tale, we find the king of Yindi riding a horse of bay. Apparently at this time, greater attention was paid to the breeding and rearing of horses for war than for hunting, or for speed competitions, or for any other purpose. Evidently, King Richard had become more fully aware of the possibilities that existed for the use of powerful cavalry, than any of his predecessors had done. Indeed, he is said to have expressed upon one occasion a strong wish that his army might one day consist of cavalry only. He believed, too, that the heavier the chargers were, the most formidable the regiment must be, and so wholly did his belief obsess him that upon occasions he betrayed a tendency to overlook the fact that the heaviest horses in the world, the most finely trained and short the best, must necessarily prove comparatively useless unless their riders, in addition to being brave and well-armed, were thoroughly trained horsemen and well-disciplined. Referring again to Chaucer, we find in the Squire's Tale, which he did not finish, the well-known story of Cambuskin's wooden horse, and we find this also in the Arabian Nights, that series of delightful narratives said to have been first made by Antoine Gallard, the French Oriental scholar. The famous brazen horse of romance is the same, for it was Cambuskin's, and Cambuskin was king of Sara and Tartary. Cambuskin possessed, so it was said, all the virtues that are popularly attributed to a king, yet withal none of a king's vices. Also he was said to be passionate devoted to his queen Elfeta, who bore him two sons, Algarcife and Cambalo, and one daughter, Kanachi. We are further told that the king of Arabia and India presented Cambuskin with a steed of brass, which between sunrise and sunset would carry its rider to any spot on earth. To make the horse do this all that was necessary was the rider should whisper into its ear the name of the place to which he wished to travel, and then he should mount that, the horse and turn a pin set in its ear. This done, the animal would go direct and at great speed to the place required, whereupon the rider returned another pin and descended. By turning a third pin it was possible to make the horse vanish and not reappear again until its presence was needed. 
Alighiero Clavellino was the full name of the winged horse with the wooden pin, the horse which Don Quixote rode upon the memorable occasion of his rescue of Dolorida and her companions. But enough of fairy tales and nonsense. Coming to the subject of horse races in early times, we find it gravely stated that the earliest description of a horse race per se occurs in 1377, though we know that race meetings of a sort were held long before that date. The whereabouts of the track where the races in 1377 took place has not been ascertained, but it is known that some of the horses which ran belonged to Lord Arundel, and some to the Prince of Wales, so soon to become Richard II. At this meeting it was that a match was arranged to take place between the Prince and Lord Arundel, each to ride his own animal. The match was run, and as the name of the winner has not, so far as I have been able to ascertain, been handed down to us, we may conclude that the Prince's horse was beaten. Had the winner been ridden by a Prince of Wales, some record of the victory which assuredly be extant. The Richard II was a fine horseman, as finished horsemanship was understand in those, understood in those days, there can be little but little doubt. Yet it is remarkable that the natural gift known as hands, that is to say the power some men have of controlling a horse by delicate manipulation of the reins as opposed to brute force, apparently was not taken into consideration in the early centuries, or else was not understood and consequently not cultivated. Today, of course, a man with bad hands is not deemed a horseman, properly speaking. Thus it comes that we find some of the early instructors in horsemanship deliberately advising the novice to catch hold of the reins tightly or in order to keep his seat with greater ease. Some of the early pictures, too, of men on horseback show the rider with his hands firmly clenched. Even when the horse is walking, the reins held quite tight. It's been argued that men sheathed from head to foot in the heavy plate armor of the 15th century could not have been ridden gracefully even had they wished to do so. Long before armor of that pattern had come into vogue, however, the riders apparently were indifferent horsemen inasmuch as they had for the most part bad hands, if we were to judge from early pictures and descriptions. All right, I'm going to stop there for this time, and, uh, and so I'll say to everyone, good night. <laughs>